Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be learning quite a bit from the founder that we have joining us. He's done it multiple times, building, scaling, financing, exiting, you name it. So I guess without further ado, Peter Jarrett, welcome to the show today. Hey, hey thanks for having me, Alejandro. A real pleasure to be here. So born in Geneva, but I know that you jumped uh, quite a bit, you know, when you were growing up because your uh, father was a uh, part of the UN. So uh, how was that experience for you? You know, it's really interesting, and it does map to entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, my mother was American, my father was Lebanese, and we didn't grow up in Lebanon. There was a war there at the time, or in the United States. And so my family started in Switzerland, where we spoke French. Then we moved to Ankara, Turkey, in the Middle East, uh, where I learned English. Uh, then we lived in London for a little bit, and then Vienna, Austria, for six years, uh, where I learned German. Uh, and then finally to the U. West uh, when I was 14 to uh, D.C. or suburb of D.C. And what was interesting about that, speaking different languages, learning, knowing them all concurrently, visiting a lot of other countries, is you really understand that, you know, there's different ways of looking at the exact same thing. And even if you're in your own head, you speak three languages, you know, you know three cultures, you can see something and you look at it from three concurrent different perspectives, and they're all equally valid. Absolutely. And obviously, you know, like the you learned quite early to program on computers. That was in, in Vienna, correct? Yeah, so it was uh, 79, 1980. Uh, my school got an Apple II, and uh, my friends and I just started coding them. We were just instantly attracted to them. Uh, my parents, you know, I was very fortunate. They bought me a Commodore VIC-20, so I used to code on that all the time, all night, and make games. So, you know, coding became another language for me. And then you get to high school and you start working with the government. So how did that happen? So it's funny. Yeah, a, a local government contractor had an advertisement at our high school for uh, like graphics work. Uh, and so I go there and I start working for them. And then they're like, oh, you can program computers. Uh, we have these Macintosh SEs. And I'd kind of toyed with Macs before, but I didn't think they were real. Uh, and, uh, you know, start using this. And then I start writing programs for them internally. And then they're like, oh, these programs are great. And then I, and then it was even my idea. I was like, why don't we make some of these for the government? 
And so we start building client server systems for like the Department of Energy, you know, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. You know, I wasn't allowed to see any of the data. So I would like make these things and like send them to Los Alamos and they'd be like, it worked. It didn't work. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's amazing. And then, then that got you to college. And I believe that uh, you overlapped there in Maryland with Sergey Brin from Google. Yeah, isn't that Funny. So there are a lot of smart people there. I mean, what was unique about University of Maryland back then is you could take all 400 level classes. There was no prerequisites. So it attracted a certain type of geek. Uh, you know, I was still working through that. So it took me a little longer to graduate. Uh, but yeah, it was a great school. Great, great people there. So then tell us about the experience, because obviously this, uh, you know, you were kind of like working also, as you were mentioning And some of this work actually eventually led to creating, you know, your your first venture. So, uh, so, so, how did this happen? Because I know that there were some interesting phone conversations that happened, you know, when you were at a at a conference and and so forth. So, so, how did you bring this company to life? Yeah. So the first company, and back then we called them projects, right? My first project <laughs> was, you know, a friend of mine was like, "Ah, oh, look at this new language, program." And it was this visual data flow language that, you know, was like a small talk. It had this speech, these features called late binding. And then we're like, oh, let's add a bunch of client server stuff to this, right? So built a whole client server platform on top of that platform. And what was interesting is back then, you know, one person could build viable enterprise class software, right? It's really not like that nowadays, or a couple of people could, uh, you know, and then the people that published Prograph, they're like, oh my gosh, this is great, you know? And so they, they, uh, they published the software. So they licensed it and resold it. Uh, and then, you know, You know, this went on for a couple of years. You know, back then there were a lot of different languages, a lot of different platforms. So super competitive in the client server world. You know, there was like Delphi and Power Builder and all this stuff. So this thing didn't really stand out. But I was at a conference in Sweden, a worldwide developers conference. Uh, that was an Apple conference, you know, in November or December. It was just like crazy weather. Uh, and I met this guy from Symantec and he was like, ah, you should try out uh, Java. And I was like, oh, I think Java just, you know, for like, you know, little widgets on browser. He's like, no, it's a real language. It's awesome. And so I flew home and downloaded Java. You know, I mean, come on, it's 1995, but we we're all geeks. I had a full-time internet connection coming into my house and a web server and stuff. So I downloaded this stuff and, and I'm like, oh my God, I fell in love with this language. And then coincidentally, at that same time, the program people were like, can we just buy you out of this? You know, because we don't want to pay your royalties anymore. And I was like, sure. So we did this deal. And I'm trying to remember, it was like 50 or 100K, something like that. And then I used that money to fund me porting the exact same software to Java. Because I was like, sure, you can buy this out, but only for program. <laughs> and then I just sat down and ported the whole thing to Java. And that became JRAD, which was one of the first uh, Java enterprise tools. And JRAD ended up being acquired by NetDynamics, which ultimately ended up being acquired by some microsystems. But I know there was a fun story there that had to do with cars. What was that story? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, we, so I sold JRAD to NetDynamics and it became the basis of like their next generation of NetDynamics. And we created this great demo of all the new Java technologies on top of the NetDynamics app server, you know, mainly on the tooling side. And we went and showed it to the Sun people and they like flipped out. I mean, they almost fell out of their chairs. And, and, and literally two months later, they buy the company for over $200 million. Right. And then, And then their stock went up 13 times in one year. This was right before the dot-com. So, you know, they, in their market cap terms, they had spent like $2 billion. But 
listen to this. You know, a year later, they do a deal with AOL where they buy out Netscape's server group. And Netscape came with this really bad app server that was written in C++, right, called Kiva that they had acquired. And they put this little thin Java veneer around it, and they pitched it as like a top-notch Java server, right? And they convinced the Sun people this was the way to go. And they should kill the Java server they had and go with the C++ server. So, you know, Ed Zander, the COO, and this guy, Mark Tolliver, they come to our office. And, you know, it was like a crap office in an industrial area, you know, off of Marsh Road and Menlo Park, where, uh, you know, Facebook has taken over that whole area now. And so they come in and they give, you know, we're all in our little center cafeteria area and they give us the big speech about how, oh, we, you know, you know, it's all good for you that we're killing your baby, right? <laughs> you know, which we were all kind of bummed about, but I'll never forget about this. I was like in the VP of marketing's office and we were kind of glum about it, but we could look out the window and those two guys were like standing in the parking lot. And they're like looking at a row of like Ferraris and Porsches and BMWs that were like bought with their money, right? <laughs> just, just shaking their heads. <laughs> they just get so much money away. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So then, so then I know that you, you, you actually stayed there at Sun Micro, Microsystems for quite a bit, no? How many years were you there? I was there for five years, you know, I mean, the stock was still worth a lot. There were interesting projects for an engineer. And then even after the dot-com crash, I worked on a project for them for federated identity, right? We basically invented, you know, you could show up at one website and log in with another, which everybody uses now, right? Log in with Google or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously this led you to do your next company, Wave Market. So, so tell us about Wave Market. Wave Maker or Active Grid was it was oh, called Wave originally. Maker. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. The interesting thing about Sun was, you know, I was on the buy side. So I sat around and helped buy a bunch of companies, right, including public ones. Uh, and then, yeah, what I realized that towards the end of my Sun days was that the Java thing had become super, super bloated and things were going to need to move to something else. And I was like, oh, if it's not that, what's it going to be? And what was emerging at that point was running large clusters of Linux machines, right? Where prior to that, you would buy like one big Sun machine. And so... I was really attracted to this technology called LAMP, right? Which was Linux, Apache, MySQL. And then the P could be PHP, Python, or Perl. Of course, Python was my favorite. Uh, and it was the right call 10 years later, right? And this is where you learn, like, early is wrong. You know, you can pick the wrong markets sometimes. Because what ended up winning was lightweight Java. And we just stuck to lightweight LAMP for too long. And then when we finally pivoted, it was like a catch-up operation, You know, there's a lot of internal strife and thrash, you know, because why are you changing what we're doing? You know, I tried bringing in a professional CEO. It was like a disaster, you know, and, and you know, eventually pivoted to lightweight Java. And then we long after, I, a little bit after I left, they sold it to VMware for like 20 or 25 million. But man, there were some good lessons to be learned in that process. So, so which one would you say was your biggest lesson from WaveMaker? You know, have your vision, have your idea of where things are going, right? And, and you should stick to it, but maybe not so much, right? You have to look at what's going on in a market and you have to iterate with it, right? And just because Python is your favorite language, right, it does not mean that, you know, enterprises that were running fat Java, you know, the easiest shift for them is to go to lightweight Java, right? Which is what SpringSource did and companies like that that exited for hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so that was like the biggest lesson for me. And then also, you know, if you're going to change what a company is doing, sometimes, you know, you have to reset the entire place, right? You can't go incrementally. 
Of course. And then this led you to your next one. So Transpond. Yeah. So Transpond was a fun one. You know, the, the thesis there was that, you know, people didn't like going to websites anymore, right? They like going to aggregators. Uh, and, you know, back then it was like portals like iGoogle. And the original thesis was like, oh, you don't want to go to Wells Fargo. You can just go to your iGoogle homepage and make that all secure. But right after we started that thing, uh, you know, uh, Facebook launched their platform. So we pivoted to doing little apps within Facebook and we closed customers like CBS and NBC and Universal Music Group. And, you know, there was like, if you remember those days of social marketing, there was like this massive wave that just hit. And so it seemed like things were going great. And then bam, end of 2007 hit, right? And everybody shit the bed at that point, right? And you had to kind of like hunker down and try to survive. So we were like in survival mode for like two years on that company right after the financial crisis. Yeah. So then, so then I know that this ended up being acquired by Oracle. Is that right? Yeah, in a long-winded way. We sold it, you know, our investors, the fund fell apart. You know, the the partner that was on my deal that I'd known for years was basically out of that fund. I ended up with like this really old guy that would send me like emails that looked like a memo. It would be like, dear Peter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? So it just wasn't viable. You know, our competitors, all their internal guys funded them like Buddy Media to kind of bridge them. We had just made it like six more months, but we, we liked the guys at WebTrends a lot. So we did a deal with them. Uh, and then that place fell apart. And then eventually they took the whole, uh, you know, all the analytics and, and marketing technology and sold it to Oracle. And then I think they left web trends behind as like an optimization web opti website optimization tool. Got it. So then, so I know, I know that after this, you spent some time at CBS, but during that yeah. time also you had your, your, your side project, no? I mean, Postano. So, uh, so can you just really quickly touch on Postano? Yeah, it's funny. So Postano was when I was at Web Trends, you know, doing my year of, uh, you know, penance for selling a company to them. You know, we were, I was sitting around and then it, it occurred to me that all these brands, you know, or I was actually, my friends were all posting more interesting articles than I was reading in the news. So I wrote a news aggregator and it was called Post Post initially, uh, you know, that would go through, you'd log in, it would go through your Facebook feed, it would grab all the articles your friends posted and turn them into like a Pinterest style board. And we hadn't even heard of Pinterest yet, but there was a jQuery tool called Masonry that would lay out stuff like that. Um, so we launched that. And then uh, all these brands called us and said, can we get one of those? And that's what turned into Postato. And uh, I was consulting at this place called Tiger Logic, which is a small public company, a microcap. And they're like, we really like this thing. Can we buy it from you? And so we did like this rev share deal. And then they basically, you know, wrapped a lot of that public company around this, this uh, social aggregation tool. You know, it was like in sports stadiums, you would like, you know, do an Instagram with a hashtag, you know, then there was a control panel where they could like, you know, say, okay, this is a decent content. And they put it up on the billboard, right? Or you'd go to a bunch of brands like Nine West or whatever, you know, and there'd be like this social aggregator there. Um, and they sold it to Sprinkler. And uh, and then they bought me out. It was actually very similar to the uh, early '90s deal I did with Program. Wow! And I guess uh, you know, like here it's again, it's a, it's a reminder of how side projects can actually become like something, something much bigger, no? And and I guess obviously you did you know a, a bit of time at CBS, but but that really led you to Safo, and Safo was you know kind of like a side project that that really exploded. 
Yeah. So Sappho was a, like one of the things I learned, and this is from those active grid wave maker days is, you know, you got to get market timing, right? That's like the number one thing. And there's this VC years ago who said early is wrong. You know, you could be like, oh, you know, I created Instacart in the nineties. Who cares? Right? <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> which I did as a side project, actually, did not go well. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and everyone's got a story like that. So now my technique is do things as a side project, iterate on them for a couple years, right? And so the whole time I was at CBS, this guy, Mark Reiser, that I had known since the early 90s, and I were working on this thing, you know, and, and back then, I can't remember, we called it MobX was our code name for it, but he became Sappho, S-A-P-H-O. And the idea for that was, you know, uh, aggregate everything a user needs to do by going into each system in an enterprise and figuring out what's relevant for them and telling them about it, right? So there was machine learning behind it, all of this cool stuff. Um, and, you know, you could just say, yes, approve off of push notification. Um, and then that's where I met my co-founder for Sappho, who's the chief strategy officer there. And I was the CIO at CBS Interactive. You know, we had a lot of fun, you know, redoing everything over there. It was basically replatform number six or seven on the comp score, right, for the internet at that point. And we did it soup to nuts. Um, and he's very strong on the business side. I'm very strong on the technical side. So I'm like, hey, I have this fun side project. He had these great ideas. And we're like, let's go do it. So we left CBS and started Sappho. Nice. And Sappho, I mean, it was quite a, quite a journey. So, uh, so then, you know, when you left for Sappho, then, then what, what happened next? What, what, what was the next phase of, the, of bringing this to life? Well, you know, it's funny because this is around, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to get the timelines right now. 2014, I think 2000, no, when you, 2014 yeah. So we tried like the typical thing, which is start a company, you know, and get a cool space in San Francisco and try to hire engineers. And we realized very quickly, you can't, right, get talent in SF anymore. And, you know, I remember we had this one guy who was like a mid-level Java engineer, and we gave him like our max offer. And then Google countered for like 50 grand more than us. And the guy wasn't even that good. And I'm like, you know what, this isn't going to work. But in the meantime, you know, this guy who had worked for us at Transpond, right, was in Prague. Uh, in the Czech Republic. And this guy was just a rock star, right? And he had his friend and they were doing a startup together. Uh, he was a front-end guy. The other guy was a back-end guy. It was Jan and Tom. And they were like, uh, you know, funding their startup development by contracting with us. But their startup, you know, was having problems with their go-to-market. So, you know, I called them up. I'm like, hey guys, why don't you just come do this cool Sappho thing with us, right? And so we gave them a bunch of cash and stock. And then we built up to an 80-person team around those two. And we're real rock stars. I mean, we were just getting like the best talent. It was a great way to build the company up because we weren't really exposed to the hiring challenges that people have in Silicon Valley, you know, when you look at 2012 till now. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that that's a very interesting point. You know, like when you are like building a business and trying to hire talent, you know, like being able to compete against like the Googles and the Facebooks that, that they're paying so much money. I mean, what, what kind of strategies or things did you, did you learn along the way to be able to enroll people on the vision and, and get them to join you? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, in the old days, in the 90s, if you wanted to poach somebody out of Oracle, you'd pay them maybe 10% less than what they were making, right? And give them stock. And they were very happy. But now, you know, even if you exit, you know, the engineers are smart. They're like, okay, if you exit this company for $250 million, you know, they do all the math. After I get diluted, they're like, okay, what I'm going to end up with is the same number amount of money if I just stay at Google for four years. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so it just doesn't work. But, you know, I, I'm fortunate because I grew up in Europe. So it was very easy for me to get on a plane and fly to Prague. 
right? Which was part of like, you know, the Habsburg empire. It looked just like Vienna, you know, and yeah. be able to work with people there, right? And, and so it worked out pretty well for us. But, you know, to do this kind of remote team, you know, it takes a lot of time on video and a lot of time on a plane. Yeah, no, 100%. And what was exactly the business model of Safo so that people that, that are listening get it? Uh, so we sold enterprise software to large customers. So that's like Fannie Mae, Johnson & Johnson, you know, people like that. And they would deploy the software. So the idea was if you had a bunch of old systems that were never going to get replaced, SAP, stuff like that, right? And even new systems like Workday that people hate, you know, or Salesforce, yeah. you got to go in there once a week. We would put this layer on top of it all and pr provide a very clean, modern interface with these things called micro apps. So you could just go in and do what you needed. And then it would learn about you and learn what these systems needed you to do and send you notifications or a feed uh, of stuff you needed to do organized by your priorities. And here you guys raised quite a bit of money too, no? You guys raised how much? That company, we raised uh, $28 million. $28 million. And something super interesting here is that, I mean, the exit was quite a big exit. So uh, Citrix, how does Citrix come into the picture and how that, did that deal happen? I mean, make us insiders for a bit here. Yeah, I know it's funny, uh, and it's actually a very funny story because uh, we were having these meetings with VMware, and we're like, oh, we need to sit down and write a little gaps analysis for all of these companies. So I listed out you know, all the people in the space and then all the features they had and then their gaps, right? And, and there was like this big glaring hole for Citrix. And I, I remember I asked my co-founder, I'm like, who the hell is running Corp Dev at Citrix, right? That they haven't even called <laughs> us. And, and I am not kidding. That weekend, I get a call from an old friend of mine that I known from like the early 90s. And he's like, oh, hey, you know, I'm at Citrix now. And your name came up. <laughs> right? and, but it still took, I mean, these things take time, right? And it still took over a year to kind of piece the deal together. And we were still building a business because we had just hit the inflection point where like Toyota was calling us going, oh, you know, we have budget, you know, can we do a POC by the end of the year and, and get this thing in here? Right? Um, but, you know, Citrix came, you know, the, and, and, you know, my co-founder was just like, you know, he's been an adventure and real business guy. So he negotiated an excellent deal for us. Right. We ended up selling that business for, I think, 225 million. So why, why do you guys sell? You know, they offered a multiple on ARR that that you really can't say no to, and the board was behind it. Uh, and, you know, in, in all of these companies, you know, even after they go public, they get bought, right? And so one of the things I've learned is there is this point where everybody can't say no, right? And uh, and that's what happened there. And also, we were like four and a half years in at that point. And then before that, it was like a two, two and a half year side project for me, right? And it gets to the point where it gets a little boring. Um, and then I had the new company, right, in country as a side project at that point. Is there, is there would you say that there's maybe like, um, like a point in time that typically founders, you know, like get a little bit lose a little bit more of, of energy or maybe passion because they, they've been at it for a while. And, and I mean, do you have any thoughts around that? There's always peaks and troughs, right? And, and, and the thing is, you just power through those, right? And, but all of these companies that sometimes they hit a point as a company, right? Where the entire place is in a trough, right? And, and sometimes it's hard to recover from that. You know, I know that we hit that point at Active Grid. Um, wave maker, but, uh, yeah. So a lot of it is, you know, even if you're down on your company, 
and you're bored with the idea or you think it's going nowhere, you know, you got to put your pants on and, and go to work and <laughs> make it happen. Make it fucking yeah. happen no matter what. There's no like, oh, I feel so bad and I'm so sad and, you know, and I need a trophy yeah. even though I delivered nothing in this quarter, right? <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So, so, then, so then here you go, Safo, you know, like nice, nice exit. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you were able to go on vacation or do some nice stuff with the with the with the exit money from that more than cars, hopefully. Uh, and uh, and then you went into in country. So in country yeah. is your your latest baby. So why don't we talk about in country? So so you didn't yeah. have enough with all the all the previous business. So why did you go at it again? Well, you know, it's become a bad habit. Uh, and you know, and at this point in my life, you know, we're in the same house and we have the same cars. Uh, and then, yeah, my wife, not so happy that I immediately did another one. because I thought this would be a slow roll, right? I'm like, ah, it's just going to be like five or six of us screwing around for like a year. because no one's going to get this thing. Right. And instead, you know, what happened was, you know, I've seed funded it with a million dollars, you know, and it was just me and Mark Reiser again, right. The guy from, uh, Postano and the guy from, uh, uh Sappho, the first uh, engineer on Sappho. And, right. you know, we thought it would take a while for people to like really get it and blah, blah, blah. But my previous investors from Sappho were like, no, we want to preempt this thing. Right. So we ended up doing a seed round really fast. Right. Um, like three months after we started, we raised $5 million and then we launched in early May and people globally really got it. So what this company does is what's called data residency. So we help uh, use store data in up to 80 countries in the world, store and process it in each country. So you can still run a global central web app like a Salesforce or a ServiceNow. And then if for compliance reasons, you know, you now need to store some data in Saudi Arabia and some data in South Korea, we manage all of that transparently for you. So what would be like one of the, especially for the people that are not so technical, like what would be like one of those examples that someone would, would say, hey, I'm going to, you know, shift gears here on how I'm storing the data? Let's say you're a medical device manufacturer that's global, right? Or a pharmaceutical company that's global and you have a customer service desk and okay. somebody from South Korea calls in or somebody from the UAE calls in and say, I have a problem with my diabetes monitor, right? That's now their personal health information. And two years ago, they could do whatever they wanted with that data. But nowadays, there's like regulations that cover this in almost every country in the world. And a lot of them say the data is under our jurisdiction. The health information of our citizens is controlled by us, not America. right? And the data has to be here. So now all of a sudden you're like, what am I going to do? I run a global call center and a global, you know, system, let's say, you know, Salesforce Service Cloud or, or Zendesk or ServiceNow, right? That stores all the data in Mountain View, right? You know, and, yeah. and, and that's where we come in. So we have a little plugin that lets you direct which fields and objects get stored in which countries. And then we do it super compliantly, right? So it's standards like SOC 2, PCI DSS, HIPAA, each local country standards. And then we get infrastructure in each country. Very nice. And then how, how do you guys make money here? Oh, we, we uh, sell the processing and storage capability by the record in each market. So two cents per record per month, which can add up. And I've seen that uh, you guys have uh, now, how much, how much have you raised for this business for in-country? Uh, one plus five plus 15. So 21 million. 21 million. And I see that you have quite a, a fair amount of of investors here. I mean, you have like great people like CRV. I mean, 
Felicis Ventures. So why did you choose these investors specifically for this? Well, Felicis and, uh, and Caffeinated uh, were the investors in Sappho. So they were the first money into, uh, into uh, in-country. And then I met Max Kazor at CRV through Ray Tonzing, who's just incredible, right? Uh, caffeinated. Uh, um, he's like the seed investor in like everything you've ever heard of. Uh, and uh, and so he introduced me to them and I'm like, oh my God, this guy knows our space cold, right? Which very few people do. So I was very impressed. And, and they were kind enough to put a little bit of money into our, uh, our A round. And how do you end up with Mubadala Capital in your cap table? <laughs> That's like quite random. You know, you'd think it's random, but the people that understood our business, right, were international investors after we launched. So it's uh, Melissa Guzzi at Arbor Ventures, right? Uh, you know, Donald Sutter at, uh, at Global Founders Capital. And then I coincidentally met, you know, Ibrahim from Mubadala, you know, at all things, a meditation conference. <laughs> right? hosted, by a woman, yeah, hosted by a woman named Dina Kaplan, right? <laughs> and and this is a funny story because nobody really talks about what they do, you know, and I, I met him, I think the first night and, you know, it turned out he was from Lebanon originally. My family was from Lebanon. And for like two or three days, anytime I saw him, I cursed at him in Arabic <laughs> as a joke. <laughs> and then, then like the last day, we're like both on the back of a golf cart, you know, he's like, Oh, what do you do? What do you do? And he's like, Oh, you know, Oh, you, you know, I, you know, I run, but move it all adventures. <laughs> and then, then he's like, what do you do? And I'm like, Oh, I'm doing this cool little thing in country. And he goes, Oh, that sounds really interesting. Can we invest? And I'm like, I thought you guys did like the SoftBank vision fund. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. We also have an enterprise software fund. Right. And, and so they, they put money in, although they were slightly delayed because of Ramadan, uh, you know, and, and, and then listen to this, what came out on the other side of it is the GCC. So all the countries in the, in the Gulf area there. So like Saudi Arabia, and UAE and Kuwait and Bahrain became our number one market. They love best of breed cloud software. They don't love their data being in other people's hands. <laughs> That's amazing. And you know, like I, I, I find it like really fantastic that you share this story because I think that founders really forget, you know, when it comes to fundraising and pitching, you know, they just want to grab their pitch decks and shove it down the throats of the investors. And, and they really forget about the human component and the, and the importance of the background relatedness. I mean, in this case, you know, without going too far, I mean, the fact that you guys were both, you know, had the roots in, in Lebanon, no? how that really got you guys close. Yeah, it was a coincidence of, hey, you're Lebanese, I'm Lebanese. And then, oh, we both like meditation to kind of like try to slow our lives down was how we made a connection well before I didn't even know he was an investor, frankly. Right. And, yeah. uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I genuinely like the guy I can appreciate like where he's coming from. Right. And, and, and venture, you know, you know, everybody's awesome, but you know, you know, this guy stands out as somebody super solid, super ethical, right. And just a good all around person does not mean he's a bad business person, but a good ethical, solid person, which, you know, is rare to find sometimes. Of course, of course. So here I have a question for you, Peter. Imagine that you go to sleep tonight and it's like a off-the-chart snooze. I mean, you're waking up five years later, right? And you're waking up in a world where the vision of in-count of in-country is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, you know, I hate to say it, but because of this coronavirus, the world is actually right now. So what, what this COVID-19 thing has done is accelerated us 10 years into the future. If you're a bank 
or a healthcare provider or pretty much anything, and you didn't have a good online strategy, you're screwed, right? So this whole digital transformation thing has just been massively accelerated. And now every financial institution worldwide can no longer say, oh, come on down to the branch so we can talk about that, right? They have to get software in as fast as possible to enable online banking, telemedicine, what have you. They want to have to get the best of breed software in that the systems integrators know. And then they also need the data to be resident in multiple markets. So, so you know, we've had some deals just totally implode on us, like in the transportation sector and places like that. But in financial services and healthcare, we've seen an acceleration, actually. Got it. And this is, this is what you were alluding to before, no? How important timing is when, when you're doing anything. It is, and it's hard to predict, right? And so we knew there was interest, and da, 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 but in our sector, we suddenly got a boost, right? Um, and it's sad to say, because this has you know, been devastating for a lot of people, uh, both for businesses and also personal lives, right? With, with uh, you know, family members sick and what have you. Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, Peter, is if you had the opportunity, and obviously this is impossible, but if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self. I mean, imagine after all these different companies that you've done and, you know, building, exiting, I mean, all of that stuff. If you were able to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, maybe that younger Peter that was coming out of college thinking about doing something and starting a business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why, knowing what you know now? Oh, of course, I would tell myself this and I would not listen to myself, which is, you know, shut the fuck up and listen a little bit. Right. You know what I mean? It's like when you're young, you're so full of yourself and you just believe in your own vision. You know, it's very hard to understand other viewpoints. And, you know, and, you know, I look back, you know, several of my mistakes. It's not like people didn't tell me exactly this was going to happen, right? And and my current startup, right? We have like a standard, you know, all hands deck, and there's one slide on there, which, you know, there was like this anthropological thing years ago where, you know, how primates learn to crack nuts, right? And you know, when one primate learns to crack a nut with a with a rock, right, there are certain animals that won't copy that. <laughs> it's a certain type of intelligence called learn from others, right? So we're like, hey, there was people here before you. They made some smart decisions based off data. So before you think everyone's wrong, find out where they came from, right? And then make your decision, right? And, and that's something that I, sadly, you know, for entrepreneurs sometimes comes with age, but I highly encourage, get different viewpoints, find out what's going on, right? And then always remember, these startups are very, very unstable. They have a tendency to attract unstable people. Right? So try to put a filter on that if you can. I love it. So for the folks that are listening, Peter, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, at Peter Yared, P-E-T-E-R-Y-E-R-E-D on the Twitters. Amazing. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And such great questions. You're clearly passionate. I, I can tell you do this yourself. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.